0: Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. So for reasons which will be obvious in a little while, I'm going to open today's message with a story. Story from Billy Graham himself. Billy Graham tells of a time early in his ministry when he arrived in a small town to preach. And wanting to mail a letter, he asked the young boy where the post office was. Well, when the boy had told him, Dr. Graham thanked him. And he said, you know, if you'll come to church this evening, you'll hear me telling everyone how to get to heaven. And the boy said, I don't think so. You don't even know where the post office is. (laughs) Oh my goodness, I assume that's true, but anyway, some things we actually say up here are actually true, sort of like the internet, right? Some things on the internet are actually true, but you have to discern, yes. So today we're going to start a new series, we promised you we'd start to do this, and the title of this new series is called Rejoice, sort of like Rejoice but it can also mean regarding joy is another way of viewing it. And it's going to be a series investigating the concept of joy. We're going to be exploring this topic as we expound on Paul's letter to the Philippians, that is the church at Philippi. I'll explain why Philippians is actually a good book for us to be studying in the Bible on the topic of joy. But first, let me quickly review some of the significant things we touched on in our last series, which was the road to renewal which is based on the Old Testament book pair of Ezra-Nehemiah and focusing on some of the events leading to renewal. So recall in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, after a time of hearing the law read, the hearers of the law began to weep. The people hearing the word of God again began to weep. But Nehemiah told them, this is not a time to weep. This is a holy day. And then he says this, he instructs them, The joy of Yahweh is your strength, or as we learned from Pastor Ian, also means, is your refuge. And one of my takeaway thoughts from that particular teaching was this. Joy can arise when we're in a safe place, where identity can be created. Personal identity as well as group identity. And that's what they experienced for all of those in Jerusalem. And the week before that, Ian was discussing the rebuilding of the wall of protection around Jerusalem, and then extended that concept to our discipleship. What? Is there a connection between the two? Yes, really, there is. And I don't have time to repeat all those concepts. You'll have to go back and review those messages again for yourself if you miss them. But some of the main concepts, if we were to apply the principles from that particular teaching, I would say this. It's applied to how we traditionally disciple people. And I conclude this. We have a discipleship problem. And joy is the solution. So what we're trying to do here at New Covenant, because sometimes we get into all the details and we lose sight of what it is we're doing here. What's our business? So somebody asks you, so what is your business that you do in that building anyway? Because some people come by here like all the other businesses, We're not listed as a church unless you look on the side one. Otherwise, it says we're a community. And people say, so what's your business here? Well, let me remind us all, shall I? We're making disciples. That is our mission. In fact, our mission statement says this, knowing Jesus and making him known. Or if I could reword it for our purposes today, it's getting to know Jesus so that we can become like him and getting others to know him as well. But see, that doesn't fit so well on our letterhead, so we had to simplify that one. Now, we all agree with the elements of becoming a disciple of Jesus, which includes things like this, Bible study, prayer, learning the creeds of the faith, practicing spiritual disciplines like fasting. But as essential and valuable as these disciplines are, Some disciples eventually come to a wall in their growth. They begin to feel there's a deficiency in their spirituality. And it's the fact that emotionally they don't feel so good anymore. Some of those feelings are gone. So some ask Is this the abundant life that we're supposed to be living? Maybe some of you have been to that wall already and you've asked that question Is this what the Christian life is all about? And some disciples actually do all these spiritual disciplines, these practices, but they never develop into the character of Jesus Christ. They remain immature, unloving, unhappy. In fact, I must say, I've heard some of the crankiest people I know call themselves Christians. And that ought not to be, folks. You all know that, right? Maybe you are one of those cranky Christians, So this is addressed to you today. Peter Scazzera, who has a church in Queens, New York, he has been pursuing this topic of discipleship for many years, and he came to this conclusion. We can't be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Let me say that again. We can't be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. So we have classes that we pursue and that here at New Covenant, they're all based on the words emotionally healthy. So we have emotionally healthy spirituality, emotionally healthy relationships. All of these things is to do this. To develop the character in Jesus, we have to slow down our lives and spend time with God, enjoying his presence, multiple times a day even. And I believe Schizero is onto something here that we need to do this to become emotionally healthy. And in the series we just finished, Road to Renewal, Pastor Ian introduced to us a book. The book is called The Other Half of Church by Jim Wilder and Mikel Hendricks. And it says that it investigates how brain science relates to our theology of discipleship. Really? By the way, I also learned that Pastor Rex has been teaching out of this same book in his Wednesday night study group at Mukunji. So to summarize one of the book's concepts, I'll try to keep this simple for you all. Our brain is designed as a dual processor. A left brain, and we have a right brain. It's sort of like cell phones. Especially the earlier cell phones that came out of here had two separate processors in there. One of them was doing your phone calls, And the other one was doing everything else people do on their phones. It's true. That's how they were done. So, in our left brain, we do certain processes we don't do in our right brain. In our left brain, we do things like conscious thought, strategy, problem solving, language, logic. And then in our right brain, that's where we develop our individual identity, our group identity. Our emotions relative to other people. We assess our surroundings, fight or flight. That instinct, that comes in our right brain. Relational attachments with the people who we'd say, oh, these are my people. I can relate to them. That all happens in our right brain. And so this is very important, though. The right brain and the left brain are both required... We need them both as part of our discipleship, but the right brain operates instantaneously before the left brain can even process the thought. And this is key to our study on joy. Our joy center is our right brain. And if your right brain is misfiring, that means you may lack love, you might lack acceptance or identity, or you lack connection with other people, you're going to be running on low joy, low joy. It's a concept we want to give some attention to. And so then our left brain discipleship process then don't click in our right brain. In other words, we don't engage properly when we go into this thing called disciple, becoming disciples of Jesus. So let me highlight first this first principle here, which is this. Character formation, or if I could say it, Christ-like character formation and building joy are inextricably linked. That is to say, you're not going to form the character of Christ unless you're also building joy into the process. As Ian taught on June 19th, he said regarding the walls of Jerusalem, without a secure place, a safe place where you gain identity, you cannot flourish. You cannot grow. But with identity, with security, with your sense of belonging, being well-connected with other people, you grow in your Christian character. You need both sides, left brain and right brain discipleship. So we just heard in this break music that I selected for today, the theme song from the TV sitcom, Cheers. How many of you are old enough to even remember Cheers, right? Yeah, it was amazingly popular. They said at one point, that at the, they said at the last episode of that series that went for 11 years, they said that approximately 60% of America was watching that episode. Can you believe that? Honestly, I couldn't stand the show. But for a lot of different reasons I won't go into. Okay, but I couldn't stand the show. So I never got into it, never got attached to it, anything like that. But there's something that Cheers can teach us about the brain science of discipleship actually. That is a place where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. That is an environment for joy. And that, in fact, is the environment where we form relational attachments. We get a sense of being with my people. These are my people. And so that's a very significant thing for our discipleship in Christ, is to understand to find our joy there. And neuroscience has discovered what Bible characters like David, David the songwriter, David the psalmist, and Paul the apostle, who we're going to be reading about today, the apostle discipler, they already knew this concept without even knowing anything about the brain. That is, we have to engage in activities that focus on our joy center. That is, the place where we gain identity, acceptance, in order to transform our character. I hope I'm not repeating this too many times, but if you're going to get something out of this today's message, I want you to get that one. Let me give you an illustration. When I got saved as a believer, it wasn't in a church service. It wasn't at a revival tent. It was in a Bible study in somebody's living room. And I got saved and I got discipled in that environment. It provided a joy-filled safe place surrounded by people who shared my experience of getting saved out of drugs. The whole group is a bunch of ex drugies and rock and rollers. It was. But God used this to give me a safe place to grow in my faith. And there, we memorized volumes and volumes of scriptures through joyous scripture and song. How many of you guys remember that emphasis on scripture in song? Those songs stay with me today. So do the scriptures too, because I memorized them in this joyous environment. It was lovely. And most of the things that i had learned in song, I didn't even know was scripture at the time. But later on realized this is Bible verse. I know this Bible verse. How do you know it? Because we sang it all the time. And I always do that on Monday nights in our Bible study. I break into songs sometimes. And they're like, what? Another song? Yep, another song. But there's another illustration I want to give you. Some of you guys know this. From ancient history, talking about 500 AD. St. Patrick. There's a book written called The Celtic Way of Evangelism. And somebody has discovered this about St. Patrick. Patrick converted and discipled Ireland by creating communities nearby these pagan druid villages. And he invited them into their daily lives and into their spiritual disciplines. They practiced, what they did. And then by doing so, they converted entire druid villages to Christianity. So this practice is what's done in the Alpha course. Now, if you've ever been to an Alpha course, how many of you have been to an Alpha course? Yes, I understand historically We added to our membership 150 people through our Alpha course. Wow. In Alpha, first you belong, then you believe, and then you behave. There's a lot of discipleship in America that's exactly the opposite, where you have to first behave before you begin to believe, and then, and only then, can you belong. So we've got to turn that around. We really do, because it works on opposite sides of our discipleship brain. It does. So the character formation, that is, transforming who we really are on the inside to be more like Jesus, is the primary goal of discipleship. And yet, in assessing the damage caused by this pandemic of the last two years, on our emotional health, on our spiritual development, we know we are diminished when we can't see one another's faces and smiles, we couldn't meet face to face. And that limited one enormous source of joy in our lives. And we were lessened because of it. Judy Fry, our pastor, one of our pastoral counselors, was insisting on the value of people seeing a smile as critical to healthy relationship. And she was absolutely right. Absolutely right. So I understand all the medical reasons for masking, but what a disaster to our relationships. What a disaster. Now, here's another piece I'd like to say. If your joy center is not getting stimulated by godly things, here's a disaster that may befall many of us. Then you will look for something else to stimulate your joy center, which leads to problems like addictions, Troubles with pornography, alternatives to godly things to stimulate that joy center. It's a problem. It's a big problem because they missed the most important thing, which is finding their joy in the things of God. All right, so now getting to Philippians. We will get there, promise. So why choose this book? Well, first of all, maybe you've all heard of this book called The Epistle of Joy. That's because Paul used words of joy 17 times in this letter. There's references to joy, rejoice, glad, cheering, words like this. But ironically, this is one of Paul's four prison letters. He wrote this letter about joy while he was in chains. How did Paul do that? This is also in many respects because of his relationship with the Philippians. It's a deeply emotional letter for Paul. And he used what to us is quite visceral language, which we'll talk about. And the first chapter is so important. It's filled with personal remarks. Not a lot of deep theology yet. In fact, he doesn't even open this letter with his typical response by saying, I am an apostle. He makes no mention of his apostleship as he does in all his other letters. This is a unique letter. But remember this, this is so important. As we go into this series over the next number of weeks, joy isn't the end goal. Maturing into the character of Christ is the end goal. Joy is the best ingredient, though, for the soil to grow our character. It's the best ingredient. So we chose Philippians to enable us to find our joy, increase our capacity for joy. All of this to enhance our discipleship. Do you all understand that? I just want to be very clear before we get in this series what this is really all about. So I'm going to give some background to the letter. If you want to open up your Bibles. And I'm going to walk us back to what are, what are the Philippians and where did all this start? And it actually goes to the book of Acts. And I'm going to go to chapter 16 in the book of Acts. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to summarize a lot of this. But as it starts out in the beginning... First of all, to mention this, the the chapter starts out with this Paul finding this disciple named Timothy, who we all know becomes a key character in Paul's life and in his ministry. So that's where Timothy gets introduced, is in the beginning of this chapter. Then it goes on later on, starting at verse 6, let's say, they were going through the region there of a number of different cities and regions. Galatia was a region, Phrygia, Phrygia. And they were looking to find out where God was leading them to go. Paul went on his second missionary journey, not knowing specifically where he was going. In fact, at one point, the Holy Spirit said, don't go there, don't go to Asia, which is very interesting to be that led of God. But then they got to some portion where Paul, in the night, had a vision. A man from Macedonia was standing there in his vision, urging him to say, come over to Macedonia. And help us. So through the Holy Spirit and that vision, he knew what he had to do. Jumping ahead to verse 11. So they set sail to Choas. They made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi. So that's how they ended up in the city of Philippi. The result of a vision from God. And then a couple other things which I'm going to summarize in the next set of verses. From verse 12 to verse 22, I'll just confirm a few things. How many of you know this saying, no good deed goes unpunished? Well, I hate to say that, but Paul really exemplifies that phrase here in this next set here. Because Lydia gets saved, this demonized slave girl who did divination, she gets delivered of her demons, And then their owners are freaking out because they just lost their business, okay? So they say to Paul and Silas, hey, we want these Jews here to be arrested. And they get arrested and they got beaten. So starting at verse 23, and when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he, the jailer, put them into the inner prison, and fasten their feet in the stocks. This is not a pleasant prison visit. But yet Paul found out later on he so often ended up in the jail that when he came to a town, he dropped his bags off at the local jail. And he says, don't worry, I'll be here later. It's how it usually worked out for Paul. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. This is verse 25. And the prisoners, I love this, why Luke includes this in here, the prisoners were listening to them. What were they praying about? Maybe they were praying for Lydia who just got saved. Maybe they were praying for this slave girl who just got delivered. But they were singing hymns to God, blessing God's name for what he possibly had just done. And then suddenly there was a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Everyone's bonds were unfastened. I love this. And then the jailer woke. He got woke. (laughs) And he saw that the prison doors were open. So he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself. Now supposing that the prisoners had all escaped, but he was wrong. So Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we're all here, even the other prisoners. And the jailer called for lights. He rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Really? And I love this. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved What was going on in that jailer's mind that led him? What did he learn or what did he hear that at that moment made him ask that question? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So as many as could understand it, he told them all about the Lord. And then he took some of them Then he took them in that same hour of the night. He washed their wounds. And he, the jailer, was baptized at once, he and all of his family. And he brought them up from his house, set food before them. He rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. Great rejoicing going on there. Well, first of all, it's interesting. Timothy was brought on by Paul before this whole thing happens. But by the way, for some reason, Tim skipped out of getting nailed with this problem here. And possibly because he was only half Jewish. So when they said, these Jews, Silas and Paul, they're the ones who got arrested, Tim skipped out. And the others had to get beaten and jailed. And yet Timothy is the co-writer of this letter to the Philippian church. And clearly, though, he was not in chains as Paul was. So we'll get into that in a little bit. So a lot of good things happened right before this. There was salvation. There was a baptism. There was deliverance. All of this happening. And then at midnight, this expression of joy that comes out of Paul and Silas. The jailer rejoices. He gets saved along with his whole household. This was the founding group of believers of the church at Philippi. Do you understand that? This is how the church at Philippi started with this event. Paul was very emotional, joy filled when this all happened. And he left some very deep friendships. Friendships that were forged even in the middle of a very difficult and painful experience for Paul and Silas. And so often this is the case in our lives. How many of you are familiar with veterans groups who face combat together? They become lifelong friends. And some of you might know about 9 11 survivor groups where friendships are formed because of a terrible experience they endured and survived. Maybe it's very much like that, where Paul and this church at Philippi saw Paul in a very difficult experience in the beginning. So it's appropriate that with a joyful start, the Philippian church gets a joyful epistle. So turn to Philippians, the epistle, and I'll do some rolling commentary here. Reading from the ESV, Philippians chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So Timothy was here at the time of the writing. Maybe even possibly Timothy was his transcriber. But it's clear that Timothy was never there as a fellow prisoner. That's very clear. But he was definitely there at the formation of the church. To the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, along with the overseers, that is the elders, and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Mind you, missing from that address was no mention of his apostleship. Interesting. Then he says this. I thank my God, which, by the way, is prayer, isn't it? Thanksgiving thanks is a prayer. In all my remembrance of you all, I have to say you all, because really I wish I could be, all of us could be Greek scholars and understand and he was saying, you all, when he said this. It's in the plural. Always in every prayer. And By the way, the word prayer that we use in English, in Greek has different colors to it, different phrases. The word Paul used here is, this prayer is a supplication. And when you think of supplication, think, pray for supply. Think of that. Supplication means prayer for supply. In every prayer of mine for you, all for you all, making my prayer, my supplication, with joy. There it is. The first mention of joy. Because of your partnership. Oh boy, I love this stuff. The word behind there is koinonia. How many of you know it, have heard or know what koinonia is? Key word from the Greek. That's what he says to them. Because of your koinonia in the gospel. And a good word replacement for the gospel there is the good message. Let me just say that. The good message. From the first day, which we read about in Acts chapter 16, until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you all will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. This has been a memory verse for many people. And it's great personal assurance of personal perseverance. But I have to say this. It's not exactly how Paul was saying it. What he was saying was, you all, as a church, as a whole group of Philippian believers, you all, I have confidence, I am sure, that God who began a work in you all as a church is going to bring it to completion. Changes the thought a little bit there. Further, Paul was expressing this. His assurance, of course, wasn't in the Philippian church. His assurance was in the Lord to whom he prayed. See, that's where his assurance was in. And it is right, verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way for you all because I hold you in my heart. And Paul was not saying in the physical heart that pumps in my chest. You all know that, right? The word heart there means something else. We get that. It means our seat of our emotions. Sometimes we say that. For you are all partakers. There's that word again. Sug koninios. koinonia again. Co-fellows, co-friends with me of this grace. Both in my imprisonment, or in my chains, and in the defense. And the word offense there is apologia, which we know as apologists or apologetics. Is what he's referring to. In defense and confirmation of the gospel, the good message. For God is my witness, how I yearn. Oh, listen, these are deep emotions now. I yearn for you all with the affection, is what it says in ESV. King James Bible readers, you see the word bowels, don't you? In the bowels of Jesus Christ. Boy, when I was reading King James as a new believer, I said, I have no clue what they're talking about here, but it sure doesn't sound good to me. It doesn't. We'll get into that in a bit. And this is my prayer. Ah, this, wor- this prayer is worship type prayer. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Now, the day of Christ, this is his second reference in a very short section of verses. What is the day of Christ? And most theologians agree, Paul is referring to the return of Christ. The fancy word for that is the parousia. That is, when the end of the world finally comes, when it all ends, when Christ returns. So Paul's referring to all these things that you'll be blameless on the day of Christ, on the day of judgment. That's what he's saying. So here's some principles I want to extract from this short book. How we're doing? Pretty good, guys? All right. First one is this. Gratitude is the on-ramp to joy. What I mean by this is there are a lot of latent benefits to gratitude. Even current secular psychologists, they've begun to enumerate all of the benefits of being thankful, and how that changes our mindset. It's good to be thankful. Paul knew that, and he demonstrates that giving thanks, especially to God, is a feeder to our joy. It's a journey if you're going to find joy at the end. should start with an exercise of gratitude. It should start with giving thanks to God. That's where you start if you're seeking joy. And here Paul expresses gratitude for his friends, at Philippi, praying with joy, he said. My next observed principle is this one. It is the shared joy in the good news, or as Paul says, the gospel, that binds these friends together. Paul is identifying, verses 5 and 7, both of them, he identifies their partnership, their koinonia in the good news, the good message, as co-partakers that's a big word of grace in my bonds and in defending and confirming the good message paul wrote these words koinonia su fellowship or can i make up a word co-fellowshippers is that a word i just made one up co-fellowshippers that is really that in this good message we have something going together here all of us that know this good message There's something between us that we share. We have a group identity. We've suffered together for this gospel. And you even shared in my suffering for the gospel when I was in prison. You suffered too because I was suffering. And so to be clear, let me be perfectly clear on this one. What did Paul think was the gospel, the good message? In the Greek, it's euangelion. Because I had some liturgical friends, where they kept saying the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And I said, can you explain to me what is the gospel? And I'm sorry to say that most of them could not answer to my satisfaction. What is the good news? I hope that after today, you all will know what is the good message. To Paul, it meant this. God had purchased, had bought our salvation, eternal salvation, through the death of Jesus Christ. Not by following laws or philosophy, but by his favor or by his grace. That is the good news. That's the gospel. So when you hear anybody using the word gospel, you got to make sure that's what they mean when they say that word. And so this is a good message that we ourselves, each one of us who call on the name of Jesus, we know that good message. We share that. And we all labor to make that message known to others. In fact, that's why we're all friends. That's why we're all here at this place called NC4. Because that good message binds us together. It's not our ethnicity. We have a lot of different ethnicities here. It's not our politics We're quite divided in our politics here. It's not our citizenship. Not everyone here is a U.S. citizen. Some of us live in New Jersey. Okay. (laughs) I'm a Jersey boy, too. I have to admit, I confess, I confess. I'm an alien, too. But yet, yet, and some of us, English is not our first language, right? But yet we have something in common that binds us together. And it really needs to be and has to remain that we all know the good news, the good message. If it becomes something other than that, we have a possibility of fracturing the reason we came together in the first place. And I see this disunity happening amongst us. I'm like, guys, remember what joins us together is the good news of Jesus. Okay? The other things you may share in common, that's an add-in. That's nice. You all like to do herbs? I'll show you how to grow herbs. We'll do a small group on how to grow herbs in our garden. Okay, that's a possibility. But that is not the primary reason why we come together. The experience of knowing our sins are forgiven, we're all children of God, thank you, Jesus. Okay, so my next observation is this principle here that loving feelings towards friends come from Jesus Christ himself. Once again, we have a language problem. Hang in, guys. I'm doing okay here. We have a language problem because as English speakers, oh, I wish we could all read Paul's letter in Greek. But we can't all do that. But let me help you. The ancients used human organs to describe feelings. Did you know that? So when they said heart, they didn't mean the thing that pumps in my chest. They meant a place of great emotions that I have. But there's another old-world term, which is my intestines, my bowels, the bowels of Jesus. So bowels means a place of deep affections, deep emotions. Listen, here's a little carryover into English, I believe. Do you ever hear somebody say, I hate him with all my guts? Listen, I think that's a carryover of this concept is where it comes from, with all my guts, deep emotions. But of course, that's very negative. But in a positive way, St. Paul's like, these deep affections I have from, are, he says, of or from Jesus Christ. These are of God. And Greek, it's interchangeable. He's saying, these deep affections I have for you, these come from Jesus himself. That's where I get these from. So Paul realizes he is the one who gives us this deep loving feelings towards one another. And it's when we share this kind of strong love in fellowship, that raises our joy capacity. That raises our potential for joy in that environment. And that, as we said, is an essential component to growing in Christ-like character. Almost getting to my last point, I just want to mention this. Did you notice when Stuart Bell was preaching and he attempted to communicate the depth of his friendship with Pastor Jack and he welled up emotions even as I am right now that's a depth of friendship we're talking about that goes really deep and Stuart almost couldn't speak it was so deep for him and his affections for Pastor Jack. It's a great example of this kind of love between friends. The last point, and we all said, thank you, Jesus. Okay. One source of Paul's great joy was his friends. And this is a takeaway I take from this segment of the letter in these first 11 verses. Paul was not under joyous circumstances at all, but he displayed great joy in his friends at Philippi. In his chains, he was cheered by writing this letter to his friends. And Paul found that even though he was chained to a Roman century, there he was chained up to this guard, he had a chance to share the good news with the guard. Oh, by the way, you know why I'm in jail here? It's because I I know Jesus. And he tells the guard all the story. I am told, historically, they found that a whole bunch of the Roman guards became Christians as a result of watching over Paul. He preached wherever he was. And we read later on, I'll set you up, for the next couple of chapters you're going to find this, Paul was cheered by a Philippian visitor, the guy named Epaphroditus, even while he was still in chains. <clears throat> and then he finishes this little segment here with a prayer, a worship Prayer. The main focus of the prayer, of course, is that the Philippians would develop the character attributes that come through knowing Jesus. That they'd grow in godly character and that God would get the glory. Amen. Amen. So guys, prepare yourselves. Prepare to get happy. No, I mean more than that. Prepare to get joyful over the things we're going to find out. We're going to find out how to build joy. We're going to learn how to avoid the things that kill joy. And those will be in the weeks to come. But listen, if by chance anyone here or anybody who hears this message in the podcast, if you don't know what that good news is and you need to know that good news, I'd like to introduce you to Jesus. And now you can know him personally like we all know him personally. We'd like to invite you to know him. If you would just pray a simple prayer, I'm going to pray the prayer And just see if this resonates in your heart today. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life. I've resisted your call to come under your wing. Lord Jesus, please forgive me. I now turn from anything I know is wrong, but I thank you that you died on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven and set free. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I want you to be with me.